is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. War crimes accusations from Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky addressing the U.N. Security Council this morning, saying the Russian military must be brought to justice for war crimes immediately. This comes after Ukraine says Russian troops massacred civilians in the town of Bucha near Kiev. President Biden has already called for a war crimes trial for Vladimir Putin will go in depth into whether the U.N. or the Hague can stop the Russian war machine in Ukraine. And we'll head back to Kiev to talk to a man there again for an update on his situation. He had spent some time in a bomb shelter. He also says his friend just visited Bucha to see the destruction up close. New study shows that one person who can be effective at persuading people to get a COVID vaccine, none other than former President Trump himself. We'll talk about that. Mass shooting in Sacramento, raising lots of questions about gun control laws. And if they work, we'll look into what more can possibly be done to try to stop gun violence. And Tiger Woods, the career in serious jeopardy after the car accident last year uh, here in Rancho Palos Verdes. Now he says he's feeling good enough to probably tee off at the Masters this week. We start, though, with uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky addressing the U.N. Pamela Falk is a CBS News foreign affairs analyst, and she is at the U.N. Pamela, thanks for being with us. How did the speech go over? Hi, Mike. Hi, Charles. Um, It was grim here. The message was clear, and that was that Ukraine has seen unspeakable atrocities, not merely war, and that the Ukrainian people want peace and justice and a security system going forward. So what you heard here were just mind-boggling specifics about the town of Bucha, which is a suburb of Kiev. So they said civilians were crushed by tanks. They were taken out and cut the limbs cut off, pulled their tongues pulled out. Women were raped and killed in front of their children. It just went on and on. And that's what Ukraine has found in mass graves and around the streets just as the Russians pull out. So their fear is that it will be in every town when the Russians pull out. They found people in basements um, tortured and dead. So it, it just went on and on with a very supportive but grim sense that the U.N. can't do a whole lot. And that was one of the points he was actually making, too, right? Right. Which is, what good is the Security Council if you can't guarantee security? You guys, the five, are supposed to be there and stop things like this from happening. But if Russia's on there and can do whatever it wants, then what are we supposed to do about it? Precisely. And it's why twice in the past month and probably coming up next week, if not later this week, uh, the U.S. and U.K. and France have all brought resolutions to the General Assembly with 193 members, and everyone has an individual vote and no vetoes by Russia, but it just doesn't have enforceability as the 15-nation Security Council has in terms of what it can do. So what he was saying was, look, if you can't, you have to do one of two things, is exactly the way he said it either remove Russia as an aggressor, and he's supportive of the U.S. push to, to boot Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council. But in terms of the Security Council, he said either remove Russia as an aggressor or 
change the seat itself and reform the structure because if as you said if the UN charter in 1945 was set up to avoid this kind of war then accountability must be taken for what has occurred i mean these are not this is not battlefield detainees this is not army against army. This is a full army onslaught on civilians. What was the Russian reaction there? Well, the Russian ambassador, Vasily Nebenzia, has been in a state of denial. He's echoing what the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is saying and Putin has said, and that is that there these are made-up stories, that these were not atrocities, that they weren't these bodies weren't on the street when they left. And satellite photos, and this is 2022. You can't just muddy the waters by denying. Uh, there are satellite photos of the bodies on the streets when they left. So, um, and it's certainly a lot of eyewitness testimony of people who saw the crimes. Uh, so, um, the, the, it just, it's, you know, it's, it's not working. And as you say, now what Zelensky also asked for was accountability. He wants these investigations to move forward. And several of them are. The International Criminal Court has an investigation started. The UN Human Rights Council itself has an inquiry. And the UN monitoring mission in Ukraine, in addition to Ukraine's own prosecutor. So unlike uh, the Nuremberg trials after the Holocaust or Milosevic after the former Yugoslavia trials, those were all years after the events occurred. This evidence is being collected in real time, and that will give a push to a prosecution. Pamela Fox, CBS News foreign affairs analyst at the UN. The images coming out of Bucha near Kiev, horrifying the world, Ukraine saying Russian troops, massacred civilians, bodies found on the cold streets. We talk now again with Karel, who lives in Kiev. We last spoke to him more than about three weeks ago. He had spent time then in a bomb shelter. He just had a friend, by the way, travel to Bucha, uh, where his friend took pictures of the destruction there. Karel, thanks for being back with us and glad you're, you're still okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what the latest situation is where you are in Kiev, the capital, and also we're interested in your friend who went to Bucha and, and what did your friend find? Uh, hey, guys. Nice to hear you again. Uh, today, the uh, situation in Kiev, uh, I think, is, is much better than uh, three weeks ago. Um the city is coming to life. Uh, I think a lot of small shops are opened right now. Um, a lot of people coming back to the city. And uh, even through the mayor uh, saying that it's still uh, um, not really safe. But yeah, a lot of people are coming back already. Uh, yeah, about the butcher. What what can I, can I say? That's uh, horrible images. Uh, I think uh, all the world 
are seeing them uh, that's just war crimes and uh, my friend uh, actually come there uh, yesterday he saw uh, saw it by his own eyes and uh, yeah he said uh, it was horrible but uh, um, even in this horrible situation uh, in this uh, horrible days that we uh, having these days in Ukraine, uh, there are still people who still live in Bucha, in Irpin, in uh, Boromla, uh, in all Kyiv Oblast. Uh, so, and they just glad that our forces coming back, taking all these towns, and they are grateful. Uh, for our guys and girls who are now in military forces. When you talk to your friend who came back, how was he doing after seeing all that? Because the pictures are, are horrible enough, but to actually see with your own eyes, I mean, that must have been really, really terrible for him. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I don't know if you can say this, but he was kind of lucky. He... He didn't see the bodies because uh, they already taken from the streets. Uh, so he was later uh, b- before uh, the most horrible pictures were uh, was taken. Uh, he only saw the destruction of the cities, of the buildings, uh, s- streets. Uh, but yeah, that's still horrible. Uh, also, he saw uh, the our Maria uh, airplane. If you know it, it was the biggest airplane in the world, uh, and the Russian destroyed it. And and Bucha, by the way, so that our audience has a sense of distance, is not that far, is it, from where you are in Kiev? It's. Uh, Something like uh, 30 kilometers, uh, I think. So, yeah, Uh, people uh, who live there uh, in peaceful time, they just go to their works in Kiev by the car. So I was going to say, so so if you got in a car, how long would it take you by car to get from where you are to Bucha? Well, uh, I don't have a car, so I don't know, but... (laughs) Uh, maybe maybe 40 minutes, maybe, okay. maybe so, half so, an hour. It depends on the traffic. Right. So, it's, so it's, clo- it's close to where you are now. So I'm wondering what thoughts are going through your mind because these atrocities that happened didn't happen a world away from where you're sitting now talking to us. They happened within maybe a 30 or 40 minute car ride. Uh, yeah, that's horrible, but uh, that's that's the only uh, thought I have. Uh, nothing less. Uh, other uh, my other thoughts. It's all about uh, war crimes. That's all Russian troops who did there. They just uh, war criminals. You think there's going to be and a I punishment can't... for them at some point? For the Russians, the Russian leadership so. after all this? I hope so. I hope everyone who did this uh, uh, will go to the trial. 
and uh, I don't know um, if it can happen, and I know I don't know if it need to be happened, but maybe even the death will be good punishment for those people. If you can call them people, because I don't know how in 21st century someone can do something like this. Because they raped uh, not only women, but uh, children. How is it possible in uh, Europe in 21st century? And uh, that's all my thoughts, actually. Tell us a little bit... uh about your own situation now. We talked to you, as we mentioned, about three weeks ago. Uh, give us an update yeah. on, on what's happening with you and your own family. Um, my family actually is not in Kiev. they in uh, my hometown. Uh, it's called Putivl. Uh, it's near the Russian border, maybe 30 kilometers to the Russian border. And uh, hopefully my family is safe. Uh, the Russian troops didn't come into the, my hometown. Uh, the only thing they did, they destroyed the bridge uh, uh, with the biggest city in my region. Uh, but uh, if if I if I can compare, if it need to be compared, yeah, uh, my hometown is kind of lucky because if uh, if it's only the bridge, it's uh, it's the best thing that can happen in this situation because all people in hometown are hopefully safe. And uh, my situation uh, is right now, I'm okay, I'm safe, uh, it's uh, a lot uh, safer in Kyiv right now. I come back to uh, my neighborhood because I lived in the shelter, then I lived uh, in an apartment of, of my friends. Now I come back uh, to my neighborhood and uh, yeah, it's quiet here. Um, Everything uh, is okay. Actually, here, nothing tells you that uh, there is a war uh, because everything is okay. Every building, uh, the only thing that it's not much cars right now uh, and it's not much people because uh, even true people coming back to the capital, the uh, they uh, still a lot of people uh, somewhere on the Western Ukraine or in Europe. Kirill, thank you for speaking with us again. And uh, we're glad that you are safe um, where you are now and that Kiev is a little bit safer than it was. Uh, and, and we hope to talk again soon. More in-depth is on the way, and uh, we'll be talking about war crimes and whether Vladimir Putin will see any punishment for this. And um, this coming across from the AP, now journalists on the ground there, AP journalists uh, in Bucha, saying they have witnessed more of the evidence of killings and torture, including charred bodies. So that's from the AP. More in-depth is on the way. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden calling for a war crimes trial against Vladimir Putin comes after news of the uh, alleged massacre of civilians by Russian troops in Bucha. 
But how easy would it be to actually prosecute the leader of such a major country? Juscelino Kolaris is co-director of the Frederick Cox International Law Center at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Thanks for being with us. So uh, that's a tough one, isn't it, for the world to, if there is a trial, to put somebody like the president of the Russian Federation on trial? Is that ever going to happen? Oh, it may happen, but probably not while Putin is president of Russia and of the Russian Federation. The reason I say that, and first of all, we have to always start these things by saying there is a growing volume of evidence that war crimes have been committed. You know, cluster bombs uh, uh, are basically bombs that you're not targeting. They're not targeted bombs. They're bombs... They're designed to explode through vast swaths of, 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 of territory and then firing missiles at civilian apartments, uh, civilian installations, et cetera. So there's no doubt on that question. The question then becomes how to bring, uh, you know, uh, President Putin to ju- justice and whether that makes sense at this point where it may actually even, uh, you know, provide uh, an added incentive for President Putin to double down and uh, uh, to see if he can get a, a quick result, if not an attack uh, by uh, chemical weapons, which would make matters worse. So there's there are these two questions. Now, you asked me a lawyer question, and here we go. Uh, to bring President uh, Putin to justice, you would have to uh, basically establish, you know, uh, one court that has jurisdiction over him. Everybody would, would, would imagine immediately that to be the International Criminal Court, the ICC, uh, uh, that operates in The Hague. The problem with that is that neither the United States, China, or Russia uh, are, are signatories of the ICC charter. So immediately upon the ICC beginning investigations, and they have already begun investigations, they have an observer there uh, 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 currently uh, uh, taking in data and testimony, uh, the problem is that Russia is not going to surrender its own president. And uh, so then the other option that could uh, be created, it's more, perhaps more possible, is if uh, the leaders of the West, you know, uh, united, and as they seem to be, uh, uh, you know, prevailed on the creation of, an, of a special tribunal. Well, that still leaves the problem of bringing Putin uh, uh, to the court, and the Russian Federation will not evidently surrender its president. Its, pre- its president basically uh, controls it. So, uh, uh, what can happen is so wait, uh, so wait, so it, so it, it we're kind of like hearing answer, like a. This it sounds is like a the answer no. is no. <laughs> it sounds like to cut to the chase because it sounds like the answer is no. Right? The Russians are never going <laughs> to own up to this. In you've got we've got civilians with like clear signs of being executed, yes. and then the Russians right. saying, "Oh no, no." They did that to themselves. No, no, absolutely not. That's uh, an absolute falsehood. But uh, the, the question then becomes, in what scenario, in what set of circumstances would that be possible? And I can think of one example. Uh, Omar Bashir, the leader of Sudan, until 2019, uh, when he was uh, deposed, uh, he's going to be, he's being brought to trial by the ICC now because he's no longer in power. A coup ousted him. And so he's being out of power now. Uh, you know, uh, Sudan is is providing him. But you, yes, but you you just point, mentioned something that's a materially uh, interesting fact that he was brought to justice 
because there was a coup, there was a change in government in the country, right? Correct. So, so is in effect what you're saying is the only plausible way to ever put Vladimir Putin on trial would be there would have to be basically a, a change in the structural government of Russia so that they would be inclined to allow him to be extradited for a trial. Absolutely. That's exactly it. Uh, uh, without that option, not possible. Now, let's say, again, entertaining the, 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 entertaining the idea that Putin is brought to justice at some point, uh, you still have to prove direct responsibility, you know, that the generals acted uh, directly uh, uh, under his orders. And that is, uh, 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 that is not so easy to prove. I mean, you have to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt in any criminal court. And, uh, 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 and of course, you would have to first uh, convict a couple of generals. You have to bring some generals as witnesses that they basically would have to state, as in Nuremberg, that they, uh, 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 that they uh, uh, were acting under his orders, direct orders, and that they did exactly as he asked. But uh, so I'm just saying that there is this on the merits kind of challenge besides the jurisdictional problems we discussed before. Yeah, you got to work your way up. Uh, Husselino Calares, co-director of the Frederick Cox International Law Center at uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. The best person to persuade people who are still skeptical about the COVID vaccine might be the one who's been blamed for much of the hesitancy. A new study finds that video compiled of Fox News clips of former President Trump and his family urging people to get vaccinated is a cheap and effective way for people to get vaccinated. With us is the uh, co-author of this study, Stephen Tadellis, professor of business and public policy up at uh, UC Berkeley. Professor, thanks for being with us. So take us through a little bit of your process here. We said uh, it's like a 30-second kind of montage. Where did you put it? How do people see it? Uh, okay, so uh, we used YouTube's advertising uh, um, infrastructure to basically blast it in a random set of a little over a 1,000 counties uh, it showed some news clips from uh, Fox where uh, President Trump, former President Trump, endorsed the vaccine and recommended that people take it. And what we saw was that people in those counties where they got blasted with those ads uh, were uh, uh, taking up more vaccines than in counties where we didn't show the ads, in particular, these first doses. So that showed us that people were actually influenced by those ads. And I guess the, the, the sad thing for those who didn't get vaccinated was that, that Trump was, was actually fairly quick in getting the vaccine, uh, as was his uh, wife, once it was available. Was it just that it wasn't publicized enough, that he wasn't going out of his way to, to mention it so that people who were his basic political, basically his political base would be persuaded? I believe that's a very accurate way of describing it. Yes, he did get vaccinated very early. And at the same time, he didn't uh, push others to get vaccinated or endorse it because, as we know, the vaccinations uh, started uh, after his uh, presidency. Was it a certain kind of voter or certain kind of person on the right, if you could dial it down to that, that ended up getting their shots? Because we've seen in a couple of occasions uh, the former president's been at rallies, and, and the most recent one was when he got his booster, and he said, I got my booster, I recommend you do too, and he got booed for that by that crowd. 
Right. That, that's a really great anecdote, because one thing that we were able to see in our data, and, and just to make it clear, we don't know who got vaccinated and whether a person who saw the ad got vaccinated, because we don't have that level of tracking, even though some Americans believe that the government does. And uh, in particular, um, what we were able to show is that counties that leaned towards Trump, but were not really heavily uh, supportive of Trump, um, there the ads did have a significant effect. They pushed the needle. But in counties that were way extreme Trump voters in, in, uh, previous, in the previous election, um, there we saw um, little to no uptick, which suggests that the very extreme people who supported Trump uh, those are probably the people who booed and the people who didn't respond to his ad, whereas slightly more moderate Trump supporters are probably more responsive to the ads. So were you surprised by that or did you sort of look at the data and say, well, you know, it makes sense, I suppose, that, that people who if you respect somebody or you like somebody or maybe you voted for somebody, you might be more likely to follow their lead? Mm hmm. So, you know, here we're really talking about uh, uh, post-speculation, right, trying to uh, rationalize what we see in the data and make sense of it. Uh, the way I make sense of it, so, uh, you know, we, we definitely didn't go out on a limb to try to uh, say that we have an explanation for this, uh, is that if you think of Trump's appeal, um, part of his appeal was to people who are for lack of better terminology, let's just say way out there, um, seeing someone, you know, not a standard politician uh, who says things to uh, uh, create a lot of uh, disruption and, uh, and a lot of antagonism. Uh, so those kind of people supported Trump. Uh, but then when he offered something more mainstream, like, hey, you should get vaccinated, they're like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to be the person who says that everything is wrong and don't trust anyone. So when you say that, we're going to boo, or when you say that, we're not going to get vaccinated, versus those who supported Trump because they're conservatives, um, but they're not way out there, again, for lack of better terminology, then when he says, hey, you should get uh, vaccinated, they are more responsive. That's my interpretation of these results. Was it pretty cost-effective for whatever you spent to, to get the YouTube ads versus how many shots you got or might have gotten into arms? That was one of our biggest surprises, was how cost-effective it was. So when you do the back-of-the-envelope calculation, uh, our intervention ended up costing a little under $1 per extra shot in the arm, uh, which is one to two orders of magnitude uh, cheaper than some other interventions, like giving people lotteries if they, uh, you know, like a lottery ticket, if they get vaccinated uh, that uh, other people have studied. So let me ask you this, since uh, a lot of Americans have not gotten either boosted or even their first uh, shot uh, for COVID, have you thought of sending the results over to the Trump organization with a note saying, dear ex-president, uh, you can do a world of wonders and good if you just advocated vaccination a little bit more in your public appearances? Uh, no, we have not, but that is a great idea. Stephen Tadellis, professor of business and public policy at UC Berkeley, co-author of this study. Professor, thanks. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The latest mass shooting hit over the weekend in Sacramento. Six people killed a dozen hurt. Shots fired following a fight as the bars and the clubs were letting out. A man, his brother, now a third person arrested. The shooting raises questions about California gun laws. They're considered the toughest in the country, yet gun violence keeps happening here. Jonathan Jay is a professor at the Boston University School of Public Health, which tracks gun control laws all around the country, and he leads a program to help stop gun violence through environmental improvements. Thanks for being with us. So, uh, you know, people who are against having stricter gun control laws point to things like what happened in Sacramento, like what happened unfortunately, several other times in recent history here in California. And they say, well, what good are all these strict gun control laws hasn't stopped the mass shootings? I would agree that uh, these these cases do show that um, strict gun laws alone aren't enough to stop shootings. They continue in every community in every state. Uh, it's true that uh, stricter gun laws are associated with less gun violence. Uh, particularly uh, fewer gun suicides. Uh, But we see community gun violence like this in every uh, community in the U.S., particularly those that are affected by um, structural racism and uh, economic marginalization. So then what discussions should we be having that need to go along with maybe stricter laws? Because the discussion we get after each mass shooting is we need stricter gun control laws, and lawmakers in Sacramento are already talking about stricter gun control laws. But then again, to hop over to the other side, there's the view of, well, how much stricter can they get? It's already super tough here. And what are you going to do when Nevada and Arizona exist? If people want a gun, they're going to go find one. And then also, what more is there in terms of room to to, to add on new laws? Because you're getting too close to the Second Amendment at some point. I think it's right that it's not just about laws. Uh, This is a major epidemic and a public health problem. Uh, So there's no simple solution, but there are programs uh, that we can put in place that we know to work. So they uh, have a lot to do with investing in communities. That is partly about programs that reach out to folks who need services, who have experienced uh, exposure to violence in the past, and may be more likely to be impacted by by violence in the future, uh, and get them resources that they need Uh, connect them with educational and economic opportunities. And then more broadly at the community level, we can do a lot to improve resources. So um, my work focuses on improving the built environment. Um, We know that um, converting a vacant lot into a simple green space is associated with reduced gun violence nearby. And more broadly, just getting more resources into communities where they're needed um, uh, is is a big part of the solution. But isn't the the real solution and I can I can see the emails coming in. uh, Isn't the real solution to do what many other countries have done? Second Amendment Amendment notwithstanding is to just make it almost impossible to buy a gun. It would be really difficult at this point to um, address gun violence in the short term through any specific set of gun regulations. That's definitely part, uh, uh, an important part of the long-term picture, but there are so many guns already in circulation, many of which are already um, uh, sort of off the books from a legal standpoint. 
uh, that um, this is a problem that we need to address through uh, a wide variety of tools. Right, because you've got so many guns and then you've got so many ways that you can change them. Apparently, this one, at least some reporting says the reason why there were so many shots fired, it was modified in some way. So you've got people letting out of bars. There's a huge fight. People have guns. And then, you know, so many people end up getting shot for, for no reason at all. That's right. So definitely there is an important, an important part of this picture has to do with the weapon itself, but then also a lot has to do with the conditions under which people were interacting. So um, uh, what is it about um, this dispute that was in which people were, were willing to use lethal force against one another? What does that say about the trauma that they've experienced in the past and the way that in particular cycles of violence have accelerated since the start of the pandemic? Jonathan Jay, professor at the Boston University School of Public Health. Tiger Woods was in a bad car wreck, you may remember, more than a year ago on a stretch of road in the Rancho Palos Verdes area. He badly hurt his right leg, so much so that doctors considered amputation. People were wondering, is the career over? They thought, um, yeah, definitely. But apparently, no. Tiger is back in Augusta, Georgia, where the Masters starts on Thursday. He says he's probably going to play. Steve DeMeglio, senior writer for Golf Week and USA Today's golf reporter in Augusta right now. Steve, thanks for being here. So Tiger's leg and his foot held together by metal. How's he looking? Well, he he looked very good on the range. He came up to uh, Augusta on Sunday. And Sunday afternoon, we could only watch him on the range because they closed the course up uh, when he went and played the uh, uh, practice round. He looked fine. Um, no limping, no grimacing. Um, if he hadn't known about the car crash, he wouldn't even be thinking about if there was an injury or not. And then I walked with him nine holes with the largest galleries I've ever seen for a practice round on Monday <laughs> on the front nine. I mean, seriously, these I would put the crowds that followed him and the galleries that were waiting for him on the, those nine holes were as large as anything I've ever seen, and this is my 16th Masters. Um, it was just mind-boggling, and he showed a lot of He showed some good power. He popped one out on three, almost drove the green on three. It's a, a slightly uphill par four. Um, he has some, some very good iron control, um, and, you know, he... He put in some serious work with chipping and putting. Um, and today he put in his longest practice session since he's got here before he met with the media. And he looked good. I mean, nothing looks out of the norm. Out of the norm. Um, so, what, what, so what's at stake by him making this decision to, to play the, uh, the Masters. I mean, if he does really well, then it's a great comeback story. But if he doesn't, I don't know what is it then. Well, I think he's already had a success. He's already said it's been a success that he's even gotten here. You know, he knows he's lucky to be alive. He knows he's lucky to still have his right limb. Um, he knows that he's put in the work. He still has the competitive fire in him. And if you ask Justin Thomas and Fred Couples, who played with him in the practice rounds, um, and uh, Billy Horschel, who's hit balls with him, and some other players who have played with him down in Florida. The game is there. He can contend with his game. The only issue is whether or not he can get around 72 holes. So uh, according to them, if he can make it around 72 holes without any major setbacks, he'll contend, and he'll add on to his legacy. But uh, 
He still has this competitive fire. He still believes he can win against the best players in the world. And until that fire is extinguished, he's going to give it a go. Is he saying the same thing, that, that the actual walking is probably the problem? Like, I can hit just fine. Oh. I know what I'm doing out there. But that's a long, it's a long road. <laughs> oh, yeah, on both, on both fronts. He, he called it a marathon. It's going to be a marathon. He said he's got the game. He's always said that he has the hands, the hands that can make up for many mistakes in his swing because they're so great. Um, they're like Seve Ballesteros had some great hands too. Tigers had some great hands. Um, but he knows that this is one of the toughest, if not the toughest walk on the PGA Tour in professional golf, up and down the hills. And it's not just up and down the hills. The only flat lies on the entire course are the 18 tee boxes. So he's got to get acclimated because this course at home in Jupiter, Florida, is flat. None of this golf course is flat. So he's got to get used to uphill lies, side hill lies, downhill lies, hitting shots with one foot above the, the ball, above the other foot, or two feet below the other foot. That's what he's concerned about getting used to, number one, and whether his right foot can withstand it. He's of the mind now because he said as of right now he's going to play. He's got a tee time at 10.34 in the morning on Thursday. Um, so as of, as of right now, if there's no setbacks, he's teeing off at 10.34 on Thursday morning. What would be the kind of setback that would stop him? If the swelling persists and, and the swelling would get too much. Um, or, hey, for all we know, you know, he's got pins, he's got needles, he's got screws in that foot. I think the, the the foot is the bigger problem than the leg. I mean, his foot has a lot of metal in it. And for all we know, something might crack or something might not get back in place or something might happen. As he says, his only concern is walking and then the treatment at night, which is lasting two hours. And then the next morning he gets up, does the treatment again to make sure he's able to go. And if there is a setback, like whether or not and he can't go, um, then he can WD, he can withdraw right up until his tea time on Thursday. But right now, he's giving all indications that he's going to play. Let's say he's contending. We'll, we'll take winning off the table for a second because everyone's going to lose their minds if he wins. But <laughs> if he's contending, are you going to be covering this surprised at all or thinking, wow, this is actually happening? What do you think is going to be going through your head? Well, I, you know, I was there at Torrey Pines when he won on a broken leg in the 2008 U.S. Open. I was there at the Masters in 2019 when he was like a year and a half removed from spinal fusion surgery. Um, I keep hearing all the players that have played against him for years that this guy just, you don't get surprised anymore. You can't get surprised anymore, but it would still shock me. It would. He hasn't had a scorecard in his back pocket in a meaningful event since the 2020 Masters in November. And when you put that scorecard in your back pocket, it changes everything. Now, he knows more about this golf course than anybody alive, so that gives him an advantage. But again, he hasn't faced the best players in the world for 18 holes, let alone 36, 54, 72. So I think it would be absolutely remarkable I guess I wouldn't be shocked, but I'd still be. With, you know, I still think I'd be stunned because I don't think he has a chance contending. But that's me, and I'd rather listen to the guys that know him better, know golf better, the swing better than I do, and they say he will contend. But I, I can't see it. It's a whole different ball game when, when 
the tournament starts. And you know, Steve. Steve, you, yeah, you, 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 I was going to say you, you were describing somebody before. I think you used the word who who is still very competitive, but you also, in your description, are describing somebody who's very driven. What is driving him? Do you think that competitive fire? I mean, this is a guy before he became a father. Um, basically, golf was his life. Um, and from the age of two, when he walked on to the Mike Douglas show and Bob Hope was there and, and, and golf was his life, it basically moved him everywhere. And he wasn't as open. Then he became a father and he became a little more open with everybody. But that competitive fire is still, is still a flame inside of him. And, you know, we thought, you know, his, his sunset, riding off in the sunset after the 2019 Masters would be the perfect ending. But he feels he can still play. And as long as he does that, he's going to go out and play. Now, granted, he loves his kids more than anything on this earth. That's not fake. It's genuine. He loves those two kids. And the next thing he loves is battling up with the best players in the world. So as long as he can, thinks he can do it, he's going to try. Steve DiMeglio, senior writer for Golf Week, USA Today's golf reporter in Augusta. Steve, thanks. By the way, before we leave, oh? happy birthday. Oh, <laughs> thank you. More in-depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.